remain standing with me and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll find the sermon scripture this evening in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 4 and going through uh, 13, uh, the end of this section. Uh, we are uh, somewhat in mid-thought here, so uh, bear that in mind uh, as we pick up in verse 4, the reading that we are in the broader context still of the qualifications for elder overseer in the Church of Jesus Christ, and we will conclude that this evening and then consider uh, the same for deacons. And so we pick up uh, Paul's thoughts to Timothy now, First uh, Timothy 3, verse 4. Hear, church, the words of God. Uh, One who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May he indeed bless it to us. You may be seated. Would you pray uh, with me, please? Father, uh, we thank you uh, for your word, your holy, inerrant, inspired word, uh, through which you have saved us by its preaching of the good news of the gospel and by you, which you build up your church in its most holy calling. We thank you again for this very practical and helpful section regarding how to organize and lead your church. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and understanding, hearts to believe and indeed to obey this your holy word. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Very briefly, uh, as we begin by way of review tonight, we've uh, covered the first three verses already of chapter 3. Paul has uh, told Timothy, and down the ages uh, is telling us, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, that if a man uh, in the church desires the position of a bishop or of an elder uh, overseer, it is a good work that he desires, that's verse 1, and beginning in verse 2, you may recall, 
He begins to give a rather lengthy list of what we call the qualifications for office bearers or the qualifications as he begins here for the elder overseer. And as we have covered verses 1 through 3 in some detail, we turn this evening now to verse 4 where Paul turns his attention to the home and to family management in the elder overseer's household. Notice that he rules. That may be a word that some of you find a bit uncomfortable. Or leads or governs his own family well. I don't know what comes to mind for you. A favorite movie, I have to admit, is Sound of Music. And I picture Captain Von Trapp, his whistle. Didn't he have a separate whistle for each child that he would use to call them to order and call them to attention? And they would have to respond in kind. This was a military man with a backbone. Uh, who ruled his own family, we might say, uh, with an iron fist. Uh, I do have a soft spot in my heart for that movie, and I love when the music comes back into the home and you can see the man softening. I'm always, uh, okay, it's very embarrassing, but I am brought to tears uh, by that scene. Uh, music has that, uh, has that power, I think. Uh, yeah, shocking, right? But, but notice, there is... There is leadership in the home, in the household. The family unequivocally is led. The family is not just a collection of individuals who do their own thing, who play by their own rules, who do whatever they please. Now, dear friends, we accept this, do we not, in business, in the workplace, on sports teams, there are quarterbacks and coaches and general managers. We accept it in government. There are mayors and governors and presidents and Congress people. How much more do you think that it is important that there is leadership, governance, and management in the home? The husband, the father, is to manage his own, notice, his own, not others' homes, his own household well. And his children, therefore, respect him or honor him or obey him, submit to his authority and to his leadership. Friday evening, as I mentioned this morning, we were examining prospective elders for the congregation in Gillette. It was a wonderfully encouraging time. And toward the end of the time, I read this passage in its entirety, fresh in my mind, of course, because of preaching through it of late. And we simply asked the two men this question. Brothers, is there anything here that jumps off the page at you that gives you pause or concern? as you are about to be examined and installed as elders in the church. 
And the other pastor who was on the commission with me, uh, Alfred from Billings, remarked in that setting, you know, there's really nothing here that I wouldn't expect of all Christian people on this list. Yes, perhaps we hold the elder or the deacon to a higher standard. Perhaps there are things on this list that if violated, if not exemplified, are disqualifying for leadership. But these are things that we teach, that we exhort, that we admonish all Christian people to exemplify. And therefore, all Christian parents, all Christian fathers, all Christian mothers, and yes, children, all children who name the name of the Lord. This is the consistent pattern. This is the repeated teaching of the Bible. Hold your place there in 1 Timothy. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. And as I read this, I want you to notice, dear friends, the mutuality of these verses. There are obligations imposed upon the children and there are obligations imposed upon the fathers or the parents. Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. He quotes, of course, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, as we call it, which is the first covenant, uh, commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Children, there's a motivation. There's a reason. Fear God. Honor your parents. God makes a promise to you. And then here's the mutuality. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Oh, that cuts. That reaches the heart. Do not exasperate them, we might say. Do not unnecessarily cause them anger or frustration, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Again, to all Christian parents, to all Christian fathers, mothers, Christian children. Look to Colossians 3. Ephesians and Colossians have a tremendous amount of content in common. Colossians is often a little bit more brief when it covers the same topics as Ephesians does, but Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. There you have it, young ones. You want to be well-pleasing to the Lord, you do. Obey your parents as they teach and lead you and admonish you. And then 21, fathers, again, the mutuality. Do not provoke your children. You see how similar that is to Ephesians 6. Lest they become discouraged. Oh, help us, Lord, for the ways we may have discouraged our children by unnecessarily provoking them. So all Christians are called to this. But as I mentioned, it is a potentially disqualifying matter if the household of 
the elder is utterly chaotic, that his children are notoriously rebellious if they bring scandal to the church and to its leadership. Oh, look at the Christian kids. Look how they live, someone might say. They're not even as well behaved as the pagan kids who at least respect their father. What good does this Christianity do if leaders can't even manage the home as well as unbelievers do? And you see, Paul is making here a connection between the home and the church. It is what we call in logic or persuasion an argument from the lesser to the greater. And it goes like this. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? What is the home but the proving ground for leadership in the church? It is a rhetorical question, but it has an obvious intended answer. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, he will not be able to take care of the church of God. Taking care of the church of God requires strong leadership, self-control, discipline, wisdom, patience, correction, admonition, instruction, training. And where is the place where those skills and competencies and behaviors that make for good leadership in the church Where is the place that those things are cultivated? But in the home and in the family. Verse 6. Not a novice. Not a beginner. Not a baby Christian. Be careful, Paul is saying, about being so enamored of a man and his gifts that you lay hands on him too quickly. Test the man. Give it time. Lest he fall into the same condemnation of the devil. What do you think that is? Lest he become puffed up with pride because he was elevated too quickly. Verse 7, his judgment and his integrity, but not necessarily his Christian faith, mind you, should be respected by outsiders. Think of that. Does every non-Christian outside the church respect our Christian faith and appreciate it? No. But the elder overseer, as far as his judgment and his integrity, That should be respected by outsiders. He should be known outside the church as an honest, decent fellow. Again, lest he fall into reproach. What does it tell you, dear friends? He knows non-Christians. They know him. 
He has a life outside of the church, in the workplace. He's known in the community, at least by some. But if he has a bad reputation, that will hurt the church that he helps to lead. Think of it. Who would want to go to such a church? Have they actually made you an elder? You? Moreover, he may think, if I can get away with this conduct of mine and still be elected overseer, I can get away with just about anything. And thus he will, Paul says, fall into the devil's snare or the devil's trap and into his power. I got away with it. I got away with murder. No one seems to notice. Indeed, they elevated me to a high position. You know, a personal aside, I am deeply grateful I have served two churches for the men on sessions with whom I have served. Now this is going to embarrass some of you, and I know I'll hear, don't do that. Not perfect men. Not sinless men, but good men. Honest men. Men of integrity whom I have been able to trust. I don't know that I can think of an exception. I am deeply grateful to the Lord and to the church for recognizing such men. Now, when it comes to the deacons, verse 8 through 13, it quickly becomes apparent, does it not, that the qualifications are very similar to the elder overseer. And we quickly see that there is significant overlap. I want to point out, dear friends, I'm not sure what you think of when you hear of a deacon, a worker, a servant. They're not just worker bees and property administrators and take care of the money. They do those things. That is what they do. They help the needy and the poor. They care for the sick. They encourage the church of Jesus Christ in its generosity and even its liberality. That's in our book of church order, by the way. The word liberal is in there. Not theological liberalism, but a liberality of generosity. And the deacons, we are told, are to encourage that in the lives of God's people to help us all be good, sacrificial givers and to help the needy. So notice, they are mature Christians too. They too are men of faith, wisdom, and godly character. If you think with me back to Acts chapter 6, where we think that the foundation of the deacon office is established with the proto-deacons, we might call them, what was the standard? They were to be men of faith and of wisdom who were full of the Holy Spirit. And one other thing is mentioned. They were also to have a 
good reputation. Tremendous overlap. They're to be reverent, he says. Sober men, worthy of respect. Not double-tongued. They are to be sincere. The idea here of being double-tongued is of speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And it's a reminder, dear friend, of the power of the tongue, of the importance of our speech, of the dangers of lying and of deception and of uh, slander, the damage done by this, the problems caused by this, the reputations ruined by this, by a lack of integrity, which are hard reputations to repair. Like the elder overseer, he is free from addiction to alcohol. He is free from greed for money, from pursuing wealth dishonestly. We've seen both of these already. Verse 9, deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. They are true believers. They believe and embrace the mysteries of the Christian faith. They believe the gospel, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of the Spirit. I could go on and on, but they are believers they hold to the faith and its mysteries and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very first, uh, this is a terrible story, but I'll share it with you. Uh, the very first presbytery meeting I ever attended, I was not a pastor, I was a candidate to come under care with Great Lakes Presbytery, and I had to drive from Michigan to Ohio. Uh, the presbytery uh, consisted of both states uh, back then. And I was given lodging with a wonderful, wonderful family in this beautiful home uh, in one of the suburbs of, of, of uh, Cleveland. And uh, I got to talking with the family and the man uh, who by that time was an elder in this PCA church. And he told his story that years and years before that, he had been a, an elder in the mainline Presbyterian church, the PCUSA back east, I think it was in Connecticut. And I said, well, tell me more about that. And he said, well, I'll tell you something. I became an elder in the church for one reason and one reason only. I was a businessman, and I was good at what I did, and they never asked me once when I became an elder if I was even a Christian. Can you imagine that? Stunning. Never forgotten that story. So deacons, as the elders, are men of faith who embrace the gospel and the mysteries of our faith. Verse 10, they should be tested. You see a pattern. They should not be novices or beginners. They should prove themselves as faithful members of the church and in the work and ministry of the church. They should show their work before they are brought forth 
for office. One of the things that I've come to appreciate tremendously about Northwoods is a long-standing principle here that I have come to understand, that men are generally not, perhaps not at all, brought forth for office unless they have served and been members and gotten to know the people for quite some time. And the principle is that they are, they are to be known and they are to know the people. They are to be trusted so that they can be relied upon. And this has caused us some difficulty, I think. We've had some wonderfully capable men come through in the last few years who just so happened to have previously been office bearers but also just so happen to have been military men. And what does that mean but that they're here with us for two or three years at the most. And we'd love to see them serve, and we'd love to bring them into office, but we don't get to know them for very long, as much as we come to love them, and we know that they will not be here for very long. It is a hard thing, I think, for a church in a military community like our own. Verse 11, their wives, or it could mean female deacon assistants. That is the flexibility of the language here, and it's acknowledged by nearly all. They too, these women, whether the office holders' wives or their female assistants who serve and support their work, they too should be reverent and respectable, not slanderers. And we say sometimes, don't we, that the Lord gives specific commandments to those who struggle most with those areas. It shouldn't be gossips, loose cannons, speak ill of others, tell lies about others. Beware of loose tongues. These are warnings. They should be temperate, sober-minded, of sound mind. The ladies, just as the men, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Verse 12, same as the elders, male officers, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. You've seen it already two weeks ago. A one-woman man. No polygamy. That is prohibited for the office bearers in the church. A sexually pure, a sexually faithful man to his wife. And ruling their children and their own houses well. Slightly different language, but identical words of encouragement for the deacons. His family life, like that of the elder overseer, is under control. Verse 13, there is a promise attached. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's a reminder that the office of deacon is one of service, 
Uh, that's how we often differentiate uh, the elder from the deacon. We say that the office of elder is one of spiritual rule or of governance or of oversight, and that he does that often through teaching, but it is a, a position of spiritual rule while that of deacon is one of service. And notice how that is brought out in verse 13. For those who have served well, he is a servant, and it is not demeaning in the Christian church to call a person a servant of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful compliment. And dear friends, there is something about serving, serving the Lord, serving his church. It builds a person up. It encourages him or her. It strengthens one who serves. Just like he said in verse 1, that to aspire to the elder office or office is to desire a good work. It was a certain incentive provided. Here, too, is an incentive to servant leadership in the church and to carry it on faithfully. Service as deacons builds up such men in their holy calling. It obtains for them a good standing, he says, and gives them great boldness in the faith, in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, it is, it is Jesus Christ whom they serve. And as they serve him, and as they serve his church, they desire to serve him more and more. A few lines of practical application. First of all, we should look for men we should identify men and train and prepare and groom them who come closest to meeting this ideal pattern that Paul lays down here to Timothy. But there's encouragement, I think, for all of us in these final words. It is good to serve. It encourages us when we serve. It builds us up when we serve the Lord Jesus and his church. I don't know how you think of service. I don't know what you imagine or picture when you hear that word. For Paul, it is not a burden. It's not a chore. It's not something undesirable. It is noble. It is good to serve. It's good for the soul. It builds one up. It's good for the faith. It makes it stronger. It's good even for courage and boldness as a Christian to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Isn't it precious that there is a promise attached to faithful service of the Lord? Are you serving? What a question to ask the most faithful members of the church who come whenever the doors are open. 
I appreciate that, dear friends. But are you serving? I bet the deacons would love some help. You might ask them, how can I be of service? Is there anything that the church needs done that is going undone? Sign me up, would you? I want to serve the Lord in a meaningful way. Beloved, there's much that could be said, but let me say this as we finish. It is good to serve the Lord Jesus. It blesses the heart. It builds up the soul. It increases our confidence. It makes us humble. It makes us more like our Savior. Father, I want to thank you tonight for many things. I want to thank you for godly, mature officers in the church who do not bring scandal or a bad reputation to the church of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this. I thank you that there are such men, that your spirit has been given and has worked in hearts and souls and lives so that there are such candidates and such office bearers in your church. We honor them. We thank you for them. We count them worthy of honor and we bless your name. Strengthen, O Lord, this, your church, humble as we are, a few in number even as we are. You know our hearts that we long to be holy, to be faithful unto you, O Lord, and to serve you with a glad heart. Thank you for the nobility of service and that to be a servant of Jesus Christ is the highest calling and the very best thing that could be said of us. Give us places and ways to serve and bless us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name.